good yeah sounds good it's good to go these uh these mics sound pretty hot i like them yeah they and they never clip i can yell into them it's like they auto adjust well i clipped a little there <laughs> i was gonna say i'm pretty sure i've definitely clipped and i've gotten a little too excitable it happens you know i have that exciting i'm excitable syndrome i'm wondering if these have like a preamp built into them and i don't they can know. just like because i'm our old ones definitely you had to have the gain dialed in on there yeah. or you'd be fucked. Yeah, these uh these are pretty solid. Mm. I it's too bad your little thingamabobs didn't work that well. I know, the fet heads. Yeah. yeah. I don't know I don't know why. I don't know why. I don't know what what they want you to do. Me neither. Me neither. We'd have a bevy of cables all over this motherfucker. And then actually, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna paint this room. This uh people can't see, but this is a disgusting Green pea. I like it. <laughs> you like that green yeah. lime green? I don't know what is gross. It's like uh, taupe. It looks like baby shit. Baby shit color. <laughs> it looks a little <laughs> bit like uh, Gerber baby food, yeah. Yeah. Probably what Jay Fox was. Uh, mm. You know what's funny? You text me earlier this week and you're like, I think we've invoked his name into reality. And I just saw that part. He didn't see the rest of the text, and I swore you were talking about Jay Fox. Oh. I was like, holy shit, did he message you or something? No. Did he come back from the God, grave? No. Did he? No, it was Alex Hogan, it yeah. turns out. The star realtor. Real estate magnate. You would, you best believe I almost crashed my car when I holy saw that. shit. His, his cute little face up on that billboard. And I thought he'd be dead, but like a cockroach, <laughs> he keeps climbing back. Maybe he gave up the gangster stuff, you know? You know, Maybe he left that lifestyle look, behind. He was on gangland. He's like, I had to leave that behind me, and now yeah. I am a successful realtor. Oh, good for him. Yeah. Maybe him and Lindahl will <laughs> hook up and be the power real estate He's, team. Uh, yeah. uh, oh, my tooth. Oh, better. Um, I went to the emergency dentist on Friday. Hell yeah. Because my, what's it called? My antibiotics ran out, mm. so that infection was going to come back. And the dentist, he said, listen, I'm not going to pull it because it's not broken. So uh, you could talk to the office people, and I'll make them set up a payment plan. Hell and yeah. then he started the root canal. Hell yeah. So now I just got to go back next week so he can put those like four little spikes in there to keep everything in place or whatever. Dude, so we're about to talk to a medical guy, obviously. And... I came to the realization by the end of this, I'm so tired of hearing stories about people who are like, I don't want to go get medical care because I'm too afraid of the bills. This yeah. is a plight in America that yeah. needs to change. I have a good meme on my phone that Vance sent me that Do says, uh, if you make enough money in America, you can continue to have all your teeth. 
And that's that's the truth. <laughs> Dude, I swear it's happened like three times this week. This one kid I work with, his fucking grandma fell, <laughs> and her goddamn ankle might be broken, mm. and she won't even go to the hospital because she's scared of the bill. Yeah. Like, that's a sweet old lady. Why yeah. can she not go to the hospital? It's fucking... Terrible. Well, it's either that or she could either have a nice healed ankle or she could be living on the streets. Yeah. Those like, are the two options. You can have the best ankle on earth and be living on the street. Come on, Or you America. can live in your house and probably develop pneumonia or something terrible, yeah. which is what happens to old people when they break <laughs> stuff. I know. I mean, it's not really funny, but fucking hey, Come on, America. Let's go. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty gross. Mm. It's a pretty, pretty mm. sad state of affairs here in Absolutely. this old place. Uh, Absolutely. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Bubble Butt Podcast, the only podcast on the internet to upload weekly. Who knows what it's going to be about this week? I do. It's the stunning conclusion to Joseph. Mm. Joseph. I almost said Joey again, <laughs> but we do not call he's, him. He's, we give him the proper name. Yeah. He's way too professional for Joey. He's not a baby kangaroo. Mm. He's a Joseph <laughs> Lister. I Dr. For- Joseph I Lister. I forgot they call bang- baby kangaroos that. Yeah, Joey's. Fucking Joey's. What are the moms called? Mm-mm-mm. Just mamas. Mom kangaroo. <laughs> yeah, mamaroo. <laughs> Picking up where we left off last week, Joseph Lister, now a professor at the Glasgow University, was educating students about the world of surgery, and after a lengthy battle with the more conservative members of Glasgow Royal Infirmary, they would finally relent and allow him to treat patients, as well as use their facilities for teaching purposes. That's right, because he was blackballed (laughs) from just about everything. London didn't want him, Glasgow didn't want him. Uh, Well, oh man, there's a lot of uh, London doesn't want him talk in this episode here. (laughs) When Lister finally started working at Glasgow Royal Infirmary, he would be placed in charge of one female and two male wards. By the way, during this time, they always kept them separated by genders. Not really sure why. Apparently, it was, like, inappropriate for, like, females to see males and males to see females within the hospital. They didn't want him to see him indecent, maybe, or something? Yeah. I don't know. Sure. Maybe you're more comfortable with the <laughs> with the package you have yeah. working on you. Yeah. I ne- I've never cared. My GP was a lady for the <laughs> longest time. I don't care. Well, we've progressed quite a bit since mm-hmm. this time. Yes, we have. Now, interestingly, the hospital had just undergone brand new construction, making it the largest hospital in the UK at the time. Now, despite the new wing only being two months old... It was already one of the most unsanitary places that Joseph Lister had ever worked at. It's the inside of a biffy in there. <laughs> one of his colleagues wrote, Its newness had not saved it from invasion by the prevailing diseases of infected wounds. How do you fuck it up in two months? They, didn't, the they forgot to transfer the bug catcher. <laughs> I guess. They probably didn't hire one. That mm-hmm. was their first mistake. What certainly did not help the situation was the fact that there were so few places within the hospital that a surgeon could even rinse off his instruments, let alone wash his hands. Mm. One of Joseph's (laughs) house surgeons would later say, When almost every wound was foul with separation, it seemed natural at the time to postpone the complete cleaning of hands and instruments until the program of dressings and probings had been finished. Ain't got time for that sanitation or shit, dude. Fuck me. Once the day's work done, then we'll clean all this stuff up. But for right now, we're just got to keep it rolling. 
Yeah, basically all of their tools were constantly covered with a nice crust mm-hmm. of blood and pus. Yummy. They just didn't have running water yet? Or... Well, the hospital didn't think it was necessary right. to have like stations, so right. there'd be like one per floor. It's <laughs> 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 so stupid. See, like last the last two episodes were kind of gross. This one's just kind of like infuriating. Yeah. <laughs> just like yeah. annoyingly infuriating. Especially through a modern lens. Yeah, absolutely. One of the male wards that J- Joseph was in charge of was located on the ground floor of the hospital. And it had just a thin wall separating it from a graveyard that was currently overflowing with rotting corpses from the latest cholera outbreak, which I cannot imagine was a great thing to have patients in that close of proximity to that. It's like, that's where, hey, you don't have far to go I once you fucking kick it. <laughs> they just have a shoot, just shoots them into the ground there. <laughs> Can you imagine? You're in the hospital. You look outside, and there's like a skeleton uh, hand sticking out of the ground. The hospital cemetery yeah. is overflowing. Like, <laughs> yeah. oh, this is five stars on Yelp here. Oh, my God. Now, interestingly, Joseph took notice that most of the surgeons at the Glasgow Infirmary were treating patients in almost a dehumanizing manner, <laughs> especially those from the poor class. Of course. So he made it a point to try to alleviate some of the anxiety of those patients by switching up his mannerisms. He would never refer to a patient as a case, instead referring to them as this poor man or this good woman. That's nice. Yeah. Also, he told his students to use technical terms so that the patient couldn't understand and thus would not scare them. That makes sense. Well, this is kind of unethical today. At the time, he was doing that just purely out of compassion. Yeah, it's better to use the big old Latin mm. words than uh, than to say like, oh man, this guy's liver is fucked with pus <laughs> and he's fucking dead. Like he basically said doctors... The other doctor would just head in there and be like, yeah, you're dying. And then just like walk out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Not a fuck. Next case. Given. Yeah. But Joseph knew full well that the poor had to live within the confines of a crushing, hopeless society. They didn't also need to hear the horrific news about a disease that was likely <laughs> going to kill them. Joseph would tell his students. Every patient, even the most degraded, should be treated with the same care and regard as though he were the Prince of Wales himself. <laughs> yes, sir. I didn't know the Prince of Wales was that important right now. It's a bedside manner there. <laughs> whoa, oh, oh, in Scotland, that's pretty close to Wales, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Well, I always assume the UK doesn't really care for Wales that yeah, much. Yeah, they hate them. <laughs> the Welsh. Yeah. Well, they have a... You know, an alphabet with zero uh, vowels in it. So. Yeah, th- th- yeah, that's backwards. Yeah. And they're on the same, like, island. It really doesn't make sense how so- how it got so perverted. Weird. Yeah, I, I have no clue. Joseph told them compassion went double for children. Patch Adams over here. <laughs> One of his house surgeons by the name of Douglas Guthrie would tell a story of a young girl who had came to the hospital suffering from abscesses on her knees. After Joseph treated her, the little girl held up her doll, and he noticed that its leg was missing. So Joseph Lister took his needle and thread and stitched the leg back on the doll for the little girl. Aww. That's very sweet of Joseph. I thought you were going to say he went to the corpse room and grabbed a (laughs) finger about the size of the leg and sewed it back on there. (laughs) He just sewed on a (laughs) full-size leg on there. (laughs) Here you go. Yeah, this is much more real than this (laughs) shitty Raggedy Ann doll you got here. Here's your 40-pound leg (laughs) attached to the half-pound doll. 
Joseph also believed in treating the more troublesome patients with the utmost compassion and patience, such as 41-year-old mill worker named Elizabeth M.K. That was just what her records show. All right. Who had came to the hospital for an injury to her hand. Lister would operate on her hand, and she would have to come back within a few weeks for further treatment. Now, problems arose when Joseph was attempting to bend her fingers back to increase the flexibility. Well, Elizabeth mistook this as him trying to break her fingers. What? And ended up running out of the hospital screaming. (laughs) (laughs) Son of a bitch is trying to break my fingers. (laughs) You didn't go to the mafia. What on earth? You're trying to get money out of her and break her fingers. She would return five months later. Oh, Jesus. After having kept her fingers in splints that entire time. Yeah, that's good for muscle growth and yeah, stuff. Yeah, it basically left her fingers paralyzed. And withered, I'm sure. <laughs> but without hesitation, Joseph helped her regain some of the mobility in her hand. So he's got the patience of a goddamn saint. Mm, I love you, Joseph. <laughs> Joseph also was big on having proper bedside manner. Always making sure the patients had pillows, blankets, and water. He would even help his patients get dressed after their procedures. God dang. Yeah, that's going above and beyond for what any fucking doctor nowadays would do. You're not doing that. No, you have the the godlike nurses that'll (laughs) help you with that. (laughs) Oh, man. I love hearing the stories of nurses treating people in in like awkward predicaments like they actually poop themselves or pee Mm. themselves bless your hearts uh, Mm -hmm. nurses you're doing the lord's work honestly lister also taught his students to not issue bills to those who could not afford treatment he said they should not charge for their services as a merchant does for his goods shall we charge for the blood which is drawn or the pain which we cause hey excellent point i love you joseph i really love you (laughs) Joseph tried to preach to his students that the greatest gift a surgeon could receive was the knowledge that they had either saved someone's life or made someone's life better by alleviating their ailments. Love it. Yeah, it's... God, this guy is a fucking saint, man. There, There's really nothing wrong with him. No. No, I mean, I, I guess this is technically from his memoir, but... Uh, and he could have done some bad shit, but he openly admits to, you know patients dying prior to his big discovery and things like that. So, I mean, he just seems like an all-around good dude. Yes. Even though teaching students and treating patients kept Joseph busy, he always made time to research with his microscope. Oh, the gentleman's toy itself. (laughs) He continued to look at tissue samples from patients, but also examined the eyeball of a rabbit and the largest jugular vein of a large pony. Wow. I don't know why he needed that, but okay. Oh, I'm glad somebody's doing it, I guess. <laughs> he kind of likes to torture horses. To At least honest. I don't have that to. That might be yeah. a red mark against him. He does like to kill animals like without hesitation, so there's that. Okay, yes, okay, but... He's doing it hmm. to further hu- helping humans, right? True, very now, true. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> what? Maybe he just wanted a large vein of a, a from a pony just to kind of play with. I don't know. Yeah, like jump rope His with pool it. noodle. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> During this time, he made some discoveries about blood coagulation. Mm. He found when blood was just in an ordinary cup, it coagulated very quickly. When it was sealed in a hard rubber tube, it didn't. 
coagulate until it was exposed to air again. So he made some good discoveries in how blood coagulation works. If it's inside like a sealed thing, mm. it won't dry out. It won't dry out. Oh. It won't start coagulating. Uh-huh. So that's like obviously when they draw blood, it's in like a soul, uh, fucking sealed tube now. Stop it from coagulating. Yes. If they just dump, they just blood light you. Yes. It's just going to coagulate pretty fast. You're just going to have clumpy blood. <laughs> he also would develop several new surgical instruments, which included a special needle for stitching wounds, a small hook designed to remove objects from the ear, mm. and a screw tourniquet for compressing the abdominal aorta, which is the largest blood vessel in the human body. Oh, so you, what, he just puts like a hose clamp on there? I mean, that's kind of what it sounds like, right? <laughs> but what he is most famous for was his development of sinus forceps, where were shaped like scissors but with ring handles, but had a six-inch blade that be- could be used to pick things out of a very small hole. Um, I was looking this up. These are still referred to as Lister sinus forceps. Are they are they just like the the forceps? It's oh. it's like a really thin blade that like kind of is angled a little bit so they can stick them up huh. there, and pluck. Yeah, pluck I've out. seen those before. Yeah. Apparently, they're still called Lister sinus forceps. Well, they should be. Yeah, good on you. Yeah, yeah. Perhaps taking after his mentor, James Sims, he also tried new types of surgery. In August of 1863, he was performing surgery on the wrist of 20-year-old Neil Campbell. You know, that's like my least favorite part of the body. (laughs) The wrist? Yeah, where all the veins and stuff are. Mm. That's no good. It's like very complicated, right? Super, super complex. And all your like uh, things that make your fingers go are in there too. (laughs) Well, I feel like, yeah, trying to Tendons get them all, all working in, in together and, like, strong and, yeah. I Like, uh, from Doctor Strange, the movie. Yeah. When he has, like, all them little things oh. in his hands. Oof. I don't even know what any of those were, but it doesn't look good. No, it looks like a horror <laughs> show. Joseph had developed a method of removing diseased bone from the wrist without doing a full amputation. Mm. But a few months later, Neil returned with the exact same issue so he would have to have even more of the diseased bone removed. Neil would come back for a third time. Just cut it off, man. (laughs) And have more of the bone removed. But after this surgery, he would go on to die of pymia. Lister's frustration with his inability to save his patients due to the rampant infection was reaching a boiling point. In his journal, he wrote, How does the poisonous matter get from the wound into the veins? Is it that the clot in the orifices of the cut vein separates, or is poisonous matter absorbed by minute veins and carried into the venous trucks? (laughs) I don't know what it is. Is (laughs) it? What is a venous trunk? It's not a a truck. It's a series of tubes, okay? (laughs) It's it's the internet. I mean, basically, the human body is the internet, right? Yeah, it's it's not a bunch of venous trucks. It's a series (laughs) of tubes. The year 1864 is going to prove to be a very trying time for Joseph Lister. He should have hopped on a boat and went across the pond, honestly. We had some things going on that required surgeons of his caliber. (laughs) What was going on over there? A little thing over here going on? Don't worry. America comes in towards the very end. Okay. 
you're going to be disgusted with America. Actually, no, you probably <laughs> won't. You just make, yeah, that's America. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Welcome to America. It started when Joseph saw that a professorship opportunity had opened up at the University of Edinburgh, which would have been a prime opportunity for him to rejoin his friend and father-in-law, James Sim. He also believes that a job like this would eventually help him get a job in London. It never will. The place that never seems to want him back. (laughs) But tragically, for the first time in his career, Joseph Lister's application was turned down. I think that's very good. Mm. He needs to flourish outside of his old mentor's shadow or else he'll never... Because that was his problem when he was under Sim, was that he would always defer to him. Right. Don't worry. You have to be your own man here, Joseph. He will become his own man. I promise you. He's cutting those necrotic bones out and stuff. He's whipping these these bitch-ass motherfuckers in Glasgow into shape. That's what he's doing. I love it. (laughs) You wouldn't think about it, but Glasgow's like... His stomping grounds were like, this shit is really going to pop off. So That's a dirty, dirty place. So it's a good (laughs) good spot to start. I've never been there. I've heard of it from... The documentary series Sons of Anarchy, I think. Oh. Don't they go there? No, they go to Ireland. I I thought they talk about Glasgow or something. They might. Mm. They might. I don't know. Well, uh, what's-his-face has a Glasgow grin. Mmm, there you go. Oh, yeah, Yeah. they cut his fucking Uh face. uh Yeah. I don't know if Joseph developed that or not, but that'd be kind of cool. I think you have to when you live there. Somebody's (laughs) just going to cut your cheeks up. (laughs) The biggest tragedy for Joseph Lister in 1864 came on September 3rd. His mother, Isabella, would lose her life to erysipelas, a disease that had haunted his mother for her entire life and also a disease that Joseph had watched so many at the hospital die from. But these tragic events might have inadvertently led Joseph Lister to try everything he possibly could to stop the plague of hospitalism. So his mother's death might actually be Kind of a good thing, because now he's like, all right, I got to get this shit solved. That's his call to action. Yeah. If this is a hero's journey, that's what makes him leave home <laughs> in order to start his road of trials. <sighs> his poor mom, man. God, she had that shit so many fucking times. Ugh. Ugh. And you just was like a time bomb. You knew he was going to get you eventually. Uh, yeah. Even when you beat it, it's like, well, <laughs> yeah. great. It's com- It's going to come back. <laughs> Joseph would start with attempting to make Royal Infirmary more sanitary traditionally the royal infirmary viewed becoming more sanitary as starting to sweep the floors on a regular basis (laughs) and occasionally opening the windows for fresh air good they're like okay it's sanitation week we're gonna sweep the floors and we're gonna open the windows we're gonna get most of the mouse poop and we're gonna open the windows a little (laughs) like what more do you goddamn liberals want from us But Joseph Lister's progressive mind started to believe that if he could keep his wards clean, maybe he could stop the spread of infection within his his patients. Now, while he was on the right track, perhaps out of desperation, he started to fall back on the miasma belief and adapted a philosophy known as cleanliness and cold water, which had gained popularity in the 1860s. What the hell? (laughs) I'll try to explain this as best as I can. Cleanliness and cold water. Yeah, you're going to, trust me, you're going to be like, these fucking dumbasses. <laughs> Which held the belief that if you were to place the instruments in boiling water, then let it cool 
before washing the instruments or using it on a wound site, it could prevent the development of infection. That sounds good. While this sounds like a good idea, they believed the miasma wouldn't be able to set on said instruments while it was cooling, and also the cold water would help prevent the inflammation from getting too hot, thus infection setting All up. right, the old temperature, the uh, old hot wound makes the infection thing. So maybe you know this better than me. They kind of explained it like if you were to coat a spoon in silver, okay, they, they adapted the pra- this practice from that. Like you set silver on there and then like it has like a period where like something can't happen to it or something. Does this sound familiar? Yeah, well, most medical instruments have silver in them because it's an antimicrobial, antibacterial hmm. by na- by like uh, nature. Yeah. yeah. But this, I don't... It's like something about when you coat something in silver and then it, it sits on there, like it takes a certain amount of time before something happens to the silver and they try to adapt this to like medical purposes, huh. <laughs> which is where... The boiling the water and shit comes in. Well, boiling water sounds like it would work because that's how you kill germs. But they would also boil it, let it sit there and make sure it gets cold again. That's so dumb. Which then allows, obviously, germs to get on it. Yeah, everything in the dirty air to just get on there, yeah. Yeah, they don't know what germs are yet, quite yet. We're getting there. Well, our boy's got his microscope, so Mm. we're getting there. Now, even though Joseph Lister is inching closer to his discovery, it is, and it is right over the horizon, we should take a moment and recognize three men who, while lost by the passage of time, were also on the right path as Joseph Lister. Beginning in 1789, a Scotsman by the name of Alexander Gordon, working in Aberdeen, started to change his beliefs when it came to the poisonous air theory. His hospital was dealing with a large amount of curable fever. <laughs> it's a hard word yep, to say. Yep. Or childbed fever from birthing mothers. Ooh. So you kind of know what this is. This is yeah. like the fucking death sentence disease for after you get birth. Yes. Gordon started to put forward the belief that it was actually caused by doctors and nurses transmitting it to patients. Which certainly it was. <laughs> yeah. Gordon claimed that he could foretell what women would be affected with the disease upon hearing by what midwife they were being delivered, or by what nurse they were to be attended during their lie-in. Was <laughs> he kind of roasting him? Definitely. Like, I know Gretchen over there is dirty as fuck. She's a dirty birdie. That woman's gonna have childbed fever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> After his findings, he would then have all the clothing and bedsheets of those affected by the disease burned and recommend the nurses and midwives out carefully to wash themselves and get their apparel properly fumigated before it be put on again. Think of this, 1789, and he is like on the right track with like stopping the spread of this. He's He's like, go take a bath, you fucking manky thing. (laughs) The second gentleman was actually an American essayist named Oliver Wendell Holmes, who more or less took the information provided by Alexander Gordon and published it in a pamphlet form called The Contagiousness of Puperal Fever. (laughs) 
But in the 1850s, it failed to catch on simply because two prominent obstetricians during the time thought the notion was downright insulting mm-hmm. that they could be considered the disease carriers mm-hmm. of the ailment that they were trying to cure. Absolutely. We're healers. We would, we, we would yeah. never infect them. Because yeah. they don't know what germs are. Because <laughs> they're god dang fools. Their fucking egos are just like... On another planet. We are healers. We are not infectious carriers. <laughs> the third gentleman was named Ignis Semmelweis, of which was a doctor in Vienna trying to prevent childbed fever. Mm. Now, he first noticed that quite a few more women died while under the care of medical students than those who were under the care of midwives and their pupils. Yeah, they're all hung over as shit. <laughs> His contemporaries believe... This was simply because the male medical students were just handling their patients much rougher than the female midwives were. Nope, because they're dirty birdies. (laughs) But Ignis did not share that viewpoint because in 1847, he realized after one of his colleagues ended up dying after having cut his hand while performing a post-mortem examination on a woman who had died of childbed fever. He noticed his colleague died of something eerily similar to childbed fever. Mm. This is when he started to believe that doctors were carrying with them cadaverous particles. He believed this because most doctors would often be doing a post-mortem examination and that had directly to deliver a baby without washing their hands, obviously. Look, there's going to be a lot of corona babies within the next two months. Ladies, think of this. You, your OGBYN just was doing an examination and he comes right in to help you deliver the baby. Oh my God. How disgusting. Only death may pay for life. (laughs) No wonder wonder you had a fucking, you had a three in 10 chance with kids. Oh my. That is just kidding me. Just the thought of touching a dead body than going. Like delivering a baby. I'm just, so gonna, I'm just disgusting. playing with these dead guts, and now I'm going to go take a baby from these alive guts. <laughs> That's a nightmare. That's like literally your OGBYN is any of the characters from House of the a Thousand Corpses. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Come yes. on in. Let's deliver this baby. Because of this, Ignis made all of those working in the hospital wash their hands in a basin filled with chlorinated water after they passed from the dissection room into the wards. Wow. He found that in April of 1847, the mortality rate from childbed fever was 18.3%. After he introduced the hand washing that June, it dropped to 2.2%. That July, 1.2%. And that August, it was 1.9%. Well within the acceptable margins. Absolutely. Naturally, he tried to spread the word to the medical community, requesting that people simply wash their hands after touching a dead body. But most believe this idea was nothing more than simple hogwash. Even if a doctor was willing to try it, they would never follow Ignis's recommended steps and thus wouldn't help battle against the spread of childbed fever within their hospital. Yeah, they'd try they'd say they were going to try it and then s- still think they knew better than Ignaz yeah. and just wouldn't do it right, I'm sure. Honestly, that's like the moral of the story through this whole goddamn episode. It's like 
the egos of these doctors are like, I know better than that dumb, <sighs> that dumb Aus- Austrian man. Fucking go have a <laughs> can of Vienna sausages, you Austrian. Fuck, you could dip them in a can of Vienna sausages and it'd be more sanitary than what they were doing. Oh, man. Honestly. If you can eat Vienna sausage, like if those are edible, even <laughs> after 10 years somehow, yeah. Go ahead, wash up in Vienna sausage juice. When Ignis published his findings, he received so many negative reviews, it ended up driving him mad and was eventually confined in a mental institution until the day he died. Yeah, it's got to suck when you have written data that proves (laughs) that it's right and you're still being gaslit to hell by everyone. The people who were with him in his final days claimed he died raging about childbed fever. <laughs> the doctors who refused to wash their hands. Lister wouldn't learn about Ignis until much later when he visited Budapest and a local physician told him the story of Ignis. Joseph later wrote, Semmelweis's name was never mentioned to me having been, as it seems, entirely forgotten in his native city as in the world at large. Uh, Dude, that's so fucking tragic. Yep. He just... Just think of how many times this has happened in history. Someone's like, this is the right thing to do, and they get roasted to death. Burn it. And then they fucking just go crazy. And, and they then, go hard in the opposite <laughs> yeah. direction. And then like 30 years later, like, oh, shit, that dude, he was right. Oh, shit, man. Fuck. Poor Ignis. Rest in peace, brother. R.I.P. Semmelweis. <laughs> I'll remember you. But back with Joseph Lister. His initial efforts to improve the conditions at Royal Infirmary seemed fruitless because the mortality rates were still astronomically high. In one week, he lost five patients due to pymia alone. (laughs) It was so troubling that his students took notice of his downtrodden nature about his inability to solve the infection mystery. Lister said this to his students later. It is a common observation that, when some injury is received without the skin being broken, the patient invariably recovers, and that without any severe illness. On the other hand, trouble of the gravest kind is always apt to follow, even in trivial injuries, when a wound of the skin is present. How is this? The man who is able to explain this problem will gain undying fame. Mm, True that, Joseph. That's about to be you. (laughs) Joseph found himself feeling defeated by his inability to save his patients. But like everyone who's probably experienced some of the darkest times in their lives, life-changing news usually soon follows. Mm -hmm. Joseph experienced this when an old friend of his by the name of Professor Thomas visited and during a casual conversation and had brought to Joseph's attention the latest findings from a French microbiologist and chemist by the name of Louis Pasteur. I've heard of Louis Pasteur. Mm, I, I always want to say Louis, but I know in French is Louis. That's right. Is, Louis, is, Louis Pasteur. Pasteur. I've heard of him. Uh, I think he's going to ring a bell when we talk about him in a second here. I bet he found out some pretty crazy shit that we oh, still yeah. use today. Oh, Absolutely. Now, Louis Pasteur had made some very peculiar discoveries involving wine made from beetroot juice. That sounds disgusting, Mm -hmm. by the way. Mm -hmm. (laughs) A wine merchant by the name of Monsieur Bigot. Monsieur Bigot. (laughs) Interesting name. (laughs) 
had came to Pasteur asking him to look into why some of his wine vats would turn sour while fermenting, while some wouldn't. By the end of his research, Pasteur would put forward the belief that the yeast was not responsible for creating lactic acid, which gave off the fetid odor and eventually rotted the wine, but it was what he would go on to describe as rod-shaped microbes, or bacteria, as we call it today. Yeah, Louis Pasteur invented microbes. He invented bacteria, and he figured out about spirochetes, which are uh, syphilis. Did he? Yeah, yeah. He figured out about spirochetes, yeah. Interesting. He discovered, like, germs, bacteria, and another guy discovered, like, the Petri dish, but I didn't really include him in there. But, uh, but yeah, the Petri dish. These two guys, very important for I wonder history. if his name was Petri. <laughs> I don't know. I wonder. Honestly, I, could, I can't remember. It's Thomas something or another. I wonder. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's super important, so you can see yeah. how they live and interact and right. stuff like that. Pasteur would boil fermentable substances and place them into two different flasks. One was a traditional open flask, and the other had an S-shaped neck that didn't allow external objects to get inside of it. He found that the open flask was filled with microbial life after a certain amount of time, while the other was not. Thus, he pushed forward the belief that microbes were not created spontaneously, but existed in the air itself. Pasteur would call this the world of infinitely small. I kind of like that. And it wouldn't be too much longer before the term germs was a common phrase. But as to be expected, Louis Pasteur received a lot of pushback from the old guard and was considered to be a maverick in the chemistry world. Where to (laughs) the danger zone. Can you imagine... You're considered like an outlaw because you believe in fucking germs and bacteria. Yeah, because you believe germs don't (laughs) magically manifest inside of injuries. Yes, you believe they're carried in the air. (laughs) This just kind of makes me be like, maybe like the things we view as crazy scientific like advancements, we should be like, maybe there's a little credence to that because... Him and Lister are both about to go through like, well, you fucking idiot. That's not even possible. Uh, you know just what I'm the saying? persecution from these yeah. fucking threshold guardian idiots <laughs> that just don't want the mm. status quo to be upset so they don't have to learn anything. Right. That's the, Honestly, that seems to be the biggest problem. They don't want to change their thought process Absolutely not. All. That's work, Cody. They mm. have their whole little life <laughs> figured out right now. And if there's now things called germs that don't just magically manifest, then they're in for a world of trouble. Exactly. The scientific journal La Presse roasted him by saying, I am afraid that the experiments you quote, M. Pasteur, will turn against you. The world into which you wish to take us is really too fantastic. (laughs) Sounds like a fucking Reddit critique. (laughs) But being a maverick, Louis Pasteur wasn't deterred and started to believe that there was a connection between fermentation and putrefaction. He said... The applications of my ideas are immense. I am ready to approach the great mystery of the putrid diseases, which constantly occupy my mind. (laughs) Now, Pasteur was more than likely more determined to solve this mystery because in the span of just six 
years. Three of his daughters had died of typhoid fever. Whoa, was there a big typhoid outbreak or something? There, I don't just know. always it, back yeah, then, it's probably. Like, <laughs> dude, in London, you know, fucking Scotland, France, San Fran, everywhere, New York, everywhere, because they didn't know what the hell was going on. No. But Pasteur was not a doctor and was lacking the vital medical knowledge needed to connect those dots. And this is where our boy Joseph Lister will become the man who changed modern medicine. But Lister wasn't the only person's attention the work of Louis Pasteur had gotten. Sir Thomas Spencer Wells, personal surgeon to Queen Victoria herself, had said this in a speech to the British Medical Association in 1863. By applying the knowledge for which we are indebted to Pasteur of the presence in the atmosphere of organic germs... It is easy to understand that some germs find their most appropriate nutriment in the secretion from wounds or in pus, and that they so modify it as to convert it into poison when absorbed. So even the queen's personal surgeon was like, this motherfucker's on to something. I can't believe a noble was was mm. willing to be was willing to accept change. <laughs> I know, it's uh it's kinda crazy. Now, Joseph Lister took this information and set out to figure out a way to utilize it in his surgeries. He understood that he couldn't prevent the wound from coming into contact with airborne germs, but could he prevent the germs from setting into the wound and thus not causing an infection? Pasteur had found three ways of successfully killing germs, heat, filtration, or by the use of antiseptics. Nice. Obviously, the first two didn't really help with the care of wounds, but antiseptics was a different story. Joseph said, When I read Pasteur's article, I said to myself, Just as we can destroy lice on the knit-filled head of a child by applying a poison that causes no lesion to the scalp, so I believe that we can apply to a patient's wounds toxic products that will destroy the bacteria without harming the soft parts of the tissue. Ooh, here's the thing. If you need to get lice treated and you go to your school nurse or whatever, she's like, hold on, we're going to put this poison net on your head. Just Mm -hmm. hold still, little kid. Mm -hmm. No, it was just, what, a shampoo or something? Uh, I, I never had it. I didn't either. Yeah, because uh, we're not dirt people. No, no, absolutely not. It's, uh... Dirt kids get lice. I was just talking to someone yesterday, and they were having a lice outbreak, and I cannot remember where it was. I'm sure it was something Wisconsin. disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> All of Wisconsin. <laughs> that is a lice outbreak. <laughs> It is important to realize that doctors were already using antiseptics, but most of the time it would just irritate the wounds, which generally would speed up the process of infection. Really? Yes. Also, they didn't realize you need to apply the antiseptics before the infection has set in and not after. (laughs) Yeah, start those right away. Yeah. (laughs) This was mostly because of the firmly held belief that healing pus was a good thing. It's never a good thing. If your shit's <laughs> pussing, you're you got problems. Different surgeons had tried a wide range of antiseptic solutions ranging from wine mixed with quinine to iodine mixed with turpentine. You fucking dummies. <laughs> you fucking idiots. 
Turpentine's like pretty fucking corrosive, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> isn't I know Sherlock stripper? Holmes drinks it. It's uh, uh, it's paint stripper, yeah. isn't it? I'm pretty uh-huh. sure it is. I don't know. I named one of my Warcraft characters Turpentine. Wow. I'm pretty proud of myself. That's actually a pretty good fantasy name, to mm. be honest. Yeah. I got it from uh, selling so much Turpentine on Fallout 4. Mm. Ah. It was a good stuff. It gave you adhesive. It gave you all a bunch of shit you really needed to build your little forts. Yeah, mm. the little bases so <laughs> that the the, the, the Minuteman can come up and Ugh, bother that you. So, that was so annoying because uh. they you're just never not under attack. <laughs> like, Jesus Christ. There has to be a point where you're not under attack. I know. And it's like Michael Myers when he's just running up to you <laughs> from the wilderness. They found that nitric acid worked well, but... At full strength, it did too much damage, but when diluted down to the point it was no longer corrosive, it was no longer an effective antiseptic. So yeah, antiseptic to them meant Mm. chemical burning Mm. the wound until the infection was gone. (laughs) Basically. (laughs) Like, if you had infection somewhere, and they're putting nitric acid on it, that probably doesn't feel real great. No! (laughs) You're just like burning the infected flesh away is all that's happening. Joseph's first test with antiseptics proved to be ineffective as well, probably because he fell prey to applying them after infection had already set in as baby well. Baby steps. Mm. It's baby steps. Listen, I'm only giving Joseph Lister the benefit of the doubt here. But eventually he would start to believe in trying them prior to the infection setting in. My boy. One of the first things he would try was Condi's fluid or potassium permanganate, which was used in flash powders by photographers. Wow. I don't know why. (laughs) He's like, let's just try this shit. (laughs) One of Joseph's assistants named Archibald Moloch wrote that he held the limb in one hand and the flaps from which all the stitches had been cut out in the other, while Mr. Lister poured kettle after kettle full of hot, diluted Condi's fluid between the flaps to cleanse them, the stumps being finally covered with a linseed poultice. (laughs) Sadly, he found it didn't prevent infection from setting in. Stop holding those flaps (laughs) is all I'm saying. I don't want to think about why the skin flaps are so disgusting. That's <laughs> good. Because it shouldn't be flaps. It, no, it, it should all be one continuous one motion. Piece. Yeah, <laughs> you don't want if you're in flaps, you're in bad condition. Yeah, go to the hospital. Yes, or don't if it's 1865. Right, just let them hang hang loose. Yeah, just die. You'll <laughs> like it better dying at home than in a terrible hospital. Now, this was most likely because Condi's fluid. While a strong oxidizing agent doesn't work so well as an antiseptic. So the Condi's fluid idea was tossed out. So it's good for OxyClean, bad for antiseptic. Good for your clothes, bad for your skin. Yeah, absolutely. The next substance that came to Joseph Lister's mind was a substance called carbolic acid, which was first discovered in 1834. Carbolic acid was a derivative from coal tar, so initially it was used to preserve railway ties (laughs) and shipyard timbers. (laughs) It was then used by engineers at a sewage works in Carlisle to counteract the smell of rotting garbage. It was also used to kill protozoan parasites that were causing plague outbreaks on cattle farms in France. Oh, this is some good stuff, yeah. <laughs> Multifast. This is like WD-40. 
it also was sometimes rec- recommended for use as a parasiticide or could be used as an effective deodorant. Wow. Or to be used as a method of preserving food. Can we still get this? Can we still oh, use sure this stuff? I'm sure you can, dude. I'm sure you can buy it. This is the best. Where? <laughs> why does Billy Mays not do a commercial for this stuff? <laughs> Billy Mays here. <laughs> Carbolic acid will seal up your boat. I saw it in half and you can <laughs> drive anywhere you are. After a day on the water, carbolic acid will float all day long. When those brain amoeba... <laughs> Brain-eating amoebas get in your head. Take a shot of carbolic acid. <laughs> Billy Mays approved. Uh. Joseph would eventually be able to get his hands on some carbolic acid direct from the manufacturer Culvert Up out of Manchester. You mank twats. <laughs> it came in a white crystal form that would turn into a liquid when it was heated. Like meth or heroin <laughs> or something. The original meth right here, carbolic acid. <laughs> And Joseph soon found his first test subject in March 1865. A person came into the hospital suffering from a decaying bone in their wrist. Always the wrist. (laughs) Joseph would go on to perform surgery and carefully wash the wound with carbolic acid. But much to his dismay, infection still set in. Mm. But Joseph had a good feeling about carbolic acid. So a week later... He gave it another go. This time, 20-year-old Neil Kelly came into the Royal Infirmary with a broken leg. Once again, after surgery, he applied his formula of carbolic acid, but again, infection would set in. For some reason, he really believed in this carbolic acid, so he would continue to try to get it to work. Joseph decided he would only try further experiments with carbolic acid on a specific type of injury because there were so many unknown variables when it came to the newly discovered germs. Yes, yes. So what do they call it? It's a control? Is this what they call it? Control or whatever? When you're doing a scientific study? And and this man's doing it Mm. because he's the best. Now, the specific injury he would try it on were compound fractures that punctured the skin. Ah. The reason for this, selecting compound fractures, was that they had an exceedingly high rate of infection. You get bone infection, blood infection, mm. skin infection. They almost always had, like, contaminants in the wound. Hell, yeah. So, and if his carbolic acid experiments didn't work, the limb was, would be amputated anyway. Win-win. And with an overpopulated city like Glasgow filled to the brim with stagecoaches that would run you over in a heartbeat, he wouldn't have to wait too long until a subject would come in with a broken bone. It's a target-rich environment. Yeah. Yeah. He knows his audience. That's a good (laughs) man. My boy thinks. He's a businessman and a doctor. Sometime in early August 1865, 11-year-old James Greenless made a vital mistake of not looking both ways before crossing the street. Mm. No sooner had he stepped onto the road, a large carriage would run right into him. James fell to the ground, and the large metal-rimmed wheel ended up crushing his leg. The wheel had crushed his tibia, causing the bone to puncture the skin. Oh, that's okay, because that's a pretty easy bone to break, you know. Yeah, that's not like one of the hardest bones in the body or whatever. (laughs) No. And James' blood was pouring onto the street. Ah. He was quickly rushed to the Royal Infirmary and placed into the care of Joseph Lister. This particular case was interesting because 
The wound was filled with dirt and grime from the city streets, and the break itself was so bad that most surgeons would have (laughs) amputated the leg immediately because infections set in so fast, most often than not, people ended up dying very rapidly. Mm -hmm. Joseph found himself at a crossroads. If he amputated an 11-year-old boy's leg, he would have to suffer from limited mobility for the rest of his life, but... If he tried his carbolic acid treatment and it failed, there was a good chance that James would just straight up die. (laughs) Joseph decided to put his faith in his antiseptic treatment. Joseph would then give the boy a healthy amount of chloroform to knock him out and proceeded with the help of his health surgeon, Dr. McAfee. McAfee Security? (laughs) Oh, yeah, he went on to develop that uh, 150 years from now, and now he's currently scamming out everybody possible. Yeah, it pops up every two minutes, whether you like it or not. It's the worst goddamn thing. (laughs) Dr. McAfee would help him clean out the wound with carbolic acid. Now, this time... After he cleaned the wound and put a healthy amount of carbolic acid on the wound itself, he covered it in putty that wouldn't allow the antiseptic solution to be washed away with blood. Mm. He then placed a tin cap over the dressing to minimize the carbolic acid from evaporating. Mm. Over the next three days, he would remove the tin cap and pour carbolic acid over the dressing, then place the tin cap back on, sealing in the antiseptic. On the fourth day, he finally removed the bandages. To much of Joseph's chagrin, there was no sign of infection or pus. Yeah. The only problem was that James' skin was quite red due to the corrosiveness of the carbolic acid. Oh, yeah. The only Mm. problem was he had terrible skin damage from four days worth of acid. Also, change the dressings all the time and and dump the acid on there. That'll be better, too. You got to remember, this is like... Baby steps. This is whatever, patient zero. Baby steps, yep. Uh, Wow, I'm super glad this little boy, because you're in Glasgow streets. Uh, There's poop. There's (laughs) animal poop and human poop everywhere. And you you just got your fucking leg ran over by something that's been driving through all of that poop a big metal rimmed wooden wheel. And then they were probably like dirty people carrying you to the hospital. Poop, Definitely. Poop people carrying you to the hospital. Oh, all poop people. <laughs> this was the next step for Joseph Lister, trying to figure out a safe way to apply it. At first, he tried to dilute it with water, but found it didn't help with the irritability that it caused. So he turned to diluting it with olive oil which seemed to give the antiseptic a soothing effect as well. Hmm. He would continue to apply his oil-based carbolic acid solution to James's leg, and it was proving effective at keeping infection from setting in. Finally, after six weeks and two days after that cart had shattered his legs, James would walk out of Royal Infirmary completely healed. No crutch? Walked out of his own volition? Walked right out there. He's a healed boy. This this had to be like a mind-blowing moment. Well, that's the first time that's ever happened. (laughs) There's no question about that. Like, how did his leg... Why is his leg still attached? Are we seeing a ghost of a boy walking outside? Well, now people are just going to assume that Mm. he's the devil. He's got (laughs) devil magic. Uh, Just wait. We'll get to those people in a minute here. Oh, (laughs) boy. 
Joseph Lister was ecstatic about finally helping a patient avoid infection. Hell yeah. Especially from the type of injury that had such a high mortality rate and infection rate, but he needed to continue to test his findings. The next patient he treated was a 32-year-old man whose right tibia was shattered after he was kicked by a horse. <laughs> you got to be careful of them horses, dude. Don't get too close oh, to them. I've played enough Red Dead 2. I've seen the gray dots where they get woofed oh, in the fucking oh, head by their horse. God, them breaking your leg. Fuck that. Ah. Oh. He then treated a 22-year-old factory worker whose leg was smashed to bits after an iron box weighing 1,350 pounds had landed on it. Holy shit. That's almost three quarters of a ton. <laughs> that would hurt. Yeah, that that's, hurt uh, just a little bit. that's a nightmare. <laughs> then Joseph would treat a 10-year-old boy who had gotten his arm caught in a steam-powered machine, and the boy cried out for a solid two minutes before anyone at the factory came to help him. Fuck. Joseph wrote, this happened to the boy's arm after I got caught in the machine. The machine continued to move, cutting into the ulnar side of the forearm, breaking through the bone about its middle, while the radius was bent backwards. Oh, God, that's... (laughs) His arm's going the way it's not supposed to. My eyeballs are sweating. (laughs) When the boy arrived at Royal Infirmary... Not only were fragments of his bones sticking through his arm, but also two strips of muscle about two or three inches in length were just dangling there. Awesome. So good. That's (sighs) great. That is disgusting. Put it on a grill. Have a little (laughs) snack. Joseph Lister would go on to successfully treat all three of these people without having infection set in in a single one of them. I love it. I love it. With his Lister oil solution. Mm. What's it called? Castor? Uh, carbolic carbolic acid, acid oil. So you, he doesn't really have a name for it. It's just like carbolic acid mixed with He should have called it whatever. Listerine. Mm-hmm. He, we'll talk about that guy later on. All right. Because this, I mean, that's, it's tailor-made for him. And yeah. I, I think he yeah. got stolen. You got to remember, he's a humble dude. He doesn't want, he doesn't care about that. He just wants to save these motherfuckers. Yeah. But people are going to be like, that's snake oil. Because it sounds like snake oil to me. (laughs) Now, it wasn't all good news because he did technically have two failures during this time. First, there was a seven-year-old boy who had his leg destroyed when it was ran over by an omnibus, which is just literally a carriage filled to the brim with people. Sure. Uh, He went on to develop gangrene after Joseph Lister had went on a little vacation. (laughs) The boy was placed under the care of his house surgeon, McAfee, who more than likely just wasn't as thorough as Joseph Lister when it came to applying carbolic acid, thus leading to them having to amputate the boy's leg. So technically not Joseph's fault. Nope, that's not his fault at all. He was out on vacation. Then there was the other failure patient, a 57-year-old who seemed to die almost randomly. Joseph would write, Some days later, a very profuse hemorrhage occurred, the blood soaking through the bed and dropping upon the floor beneath. They would later find out that a little piece of bone fragment fragment from his broken leg had pierced his popliteal artery in, in his thigh and he ended up bleeding to death. But they didn't realize that it was cut, so he didn't die for like a day or two later. Yeah, until it all popped through his body. Yeah. 
1865, of his 10 patients that came in with compound fractures, eight of them healed completely fine. Great. One had his leg amputated. Not his fault. And one died also from the bone yeah. thing. Obviously, yeah, the last two aren't really his fault. Naturally, Joseph decided he needed to expand his experiments with, with carbolic acid on different forms of injuries. He decided to head straight for abscesses, more specifically abscesses that were caused by spinal tuberculosis. Ugh. Ugh. That's a bad place to get TB, I'd imagine. Yeah. These were known as, I don't even know this word. Psoas, psoas abscesses. It's probably like swasses abscesses or something. It's P-S-A-O-A-S. I don't know what that is. Sounds like a snake. (laughs) It sounds like a type of snake. I don't know. Parcel tongue abscesses. (laughs) These large pus pockets would form on one of the long muscles on the back of the abdomen cavity, often getting so large they would extend down to the groin. Fuck! Ooh, God, that sounds painful. Fuck! fuck. These abscesses in particular were dangerous to operate on, one, because of the location, and two, Due to the high probability of them becoming infected. Yeah, they say you can't go into the gut, right? Mm, That's one of the no-no zones. And you have literally a pocket covered in blood and pus. That is infection. Yeah, that's all infection. And it goes all the way down to your fucking wiener. Oh, God, that is... I I hope nobody ever has to go through that. That sounds horrible. Tuberculosis is pretty much eradicated, right? Yeah. Okay, good, 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 good. You know what's funny, actually? Speaking of germs here... Um, literally before you came over, I was reading through Insane People Facebook, and there was someone who was posting that um, germs are made up, and there's a, a fake germ agenda. And I'm just like, holy shit, I'm literally reading about people from 200 years ago who are believing the same thing, and then a man of today is still trying to push that germs are not real. I I, I could die. Honestly, I sometimes I want to just jump because I just hate. I'm so I'm so full of hatred sometimes, and that's not uh, healthy for anybody. No, absolutely not. Like the last year and a half has really proved the crazy people are out there. They, and they they're are alive thriving. and well, and now yeah. they have a fucking platform and something to be outraged about. And they're crazy. I've never anybody who doesn't believe in germs just turn this off immediately and yeah, don't ever jump, listen again. Jump, find something and jump. Joseph would start to develop a new technique involving disinfecting the skin around the wound with carbolic acid, then dressing the cavity with a putty-like substance similar to the one he had used on James Greenless. He would combine carbonite of lime with a solution of carbolic acid that he then boiled in linseed oil. On top of all this, he started placing a piece of lint that was soaked in carbolic acid solution and proceeded to change the dressings daily. Lister would write, The course run by cases of abscesses treated in this way is so beautifully in harmony with the theory of the whole subject of separation. And besides, the treatment is now rendered so simple and easy for anyone to put in practice uh, that it really charms me, mm, including so- my dipshit house surgeon, Dr. McAfee. <laughs> I might not have to cut off a little boy's leg because he sucks at his job. Well, you got to see, his mind was on antivirus uh, software, wasn't on treating 
the boy's leg. Yeah, he was trying to make sure that more people would sign up past the free <laughs> subscription to his shitty antivirus software. Dude, Best Buy used to hawk that shit so hard. Off, I bet they did. Mm. Through Geek Squad, too, that, I bet. That, McAfee and Webroot were like their Webroot. two- Webroot? Yeah, that was an old one. I think it's defunct now. <laughs> wow, yeah, I've never even heard of that one. Along with Joseph's newly found success in his antiseptic treatment, another blissful moment had appeared before his eyes when a job position opened as chair of systematic surgery at UCL. Don't get your hopes up. Not only was this, this his alma mater, but he could possibly finally return to London. Oh, Joseph. Lister would write a letter to Lord Broham, the president of UCL, asking for support in his candidacy. In his letter, he also attached a section all about his discovery with germs Which titled... Right. Notice of a new method of treating compound fractures. <laughs> Apparently, the Lord wasn't impressed because Joseph was turned down. Yeah, you can't get your hopes up. London no. fucking hates you, yeah, Joseph. I don't know why. They I really fucking, don't know why. Because he's a hippie. He's a <laughs> fucking hippie. He's out there at Woodstock, Jimi Hendrix, and all over the place. Right. Surprisingly, Lister wasn't too bothered because he was finally beginning to conquer the one thing that had haunted him his entire medical career. After two years of experimenting at Glasgow Royal Infirmary, he would publish his findings in The Lancet, which was a medical journal, on March 16, 1867, titled On a New Method of Treating Compound Fracture, Abscess, ETC, with Observations on the Conditions of Suppuration. Could work on a little sexier title, but we'll, we'll, we'll leave it there. Yeah, I know it's a medical journal, but for Christ's sake... <laughs> Most of this was more of an instructional guide trying to convince those in the medical field to utilize his technique. He would try to explain that his carbolic acid antiseptic treatment had proved to be successful because not a single case of pymia, gangrene, or erysipelas had occurred in Lister's wards, Hell yeah. which should have been eye-opening to surgeons considering Glasgow Royal Infirmary was literally one of the dirtiest hospitals in the country. And it had completely eliminated hospitalism. Well, just his just his three wings. Which I'm fine with. Yeah, the, yeah. of course the other surgeons did whatever yeah, they did. Yeah. But as with every single person we have talked about throughout this series advancing anything, pushback followed suit, which we will get into shortly. But Joseph was about to be put into a predicament that if he truly believed his antiseptic treatment worked, would be put to the ultimate test. Oh, shit. My man's going to need a surgery, mm. I think. Or uh, also, or also, I guess, the fucking... It's gone. But it was going to be a good point. This test would come in the form of Joseph Lister's own sister, Isabella Pym, who had recently discovered a cancerous lump in her breast. Oh, shout out Jody. Uh, She's doing great. She's going back to work soon. Excellent. Well, you tell Jody, Joseph Lister here uh, saved probably a lot of women's lives from breast cancer. I'm going to tell her that as soon as Mm. I'm going to say, hey, Jody, Joseph Lister saved probably (laughs) a lot of women's lives. (laughs) Now, it wasn't a surprise. Operating on a woman's breast in the 1800s 
was often considered to be a death sentence. Sure. Several other surgeons had already declined to perform the removal of the tumor from Isabella simply because of all the risks involved. With nowhere else to turn, she looked to her brother Joseph. One of the other critical problems about the situation was that Joseph had never performed a mastectomy before, mm -hmm. and other surgeons, including James Sims, had recommended that he dare not try it. But this was his sister, and if he did not completely remove all of the infected tumor, his sister would ultimately die. Joseph would spend several days practicing mastectomies in the dissection room before trying it on Isabella. On June 16, 1867, Isabella Lister Pym would lay upon Joseph's makeshift operating table, which was just the dining room table within his home. Mm -hmm. Isabella was then put to sleep via chloroform. Joseph and his assistants would dip all of their instruments in carbolic acid and then place them underneath a cloth to prevent debris from getting on top of them then dip their hands in the solution prior to beginning the procedure and clean the surface area of the skin with carbolic acid prior to cutting into the flush. This must be uh, in, remember the show I've been telling mm, you about, the, yeah, Nick? the Nick? So this must be like the weird colored stuff that they dip their hands in and also put on the body when Probably they're about to is. cut. Yeah. I don't know how long they continue to use this, but at least they knew we have to... Do, do something. something yeah, we gotta do something here. <laughs> he then carefully cut from the pectoral muscle to the armpit, then would remove the breast tissue, muscle, and lymph nodes. The removal of the lump was successful, but everyone knew the real challenge was preventing infection. He would cover her chest with eight layers of gauze that had been soaked in this, his solution of carbolic acid mixed with linseed oil. Now, he may have went a little overboard because he actually would wrap up her back and shoulders as well, but he wanted to be extra cautious simply because it was his sister. I don't blame him. After the procedure, Isabella would be placed in a guest bedroom, and it was merely a waiting game from here. Joseph would later say, I am very glad it has been done. I may say the operation was done at least as well as if she had not been my sister at all. But I do not wish to do such a thing again. Uh, I I don't know. He That's wants to go be... out on top. One for one. Yeah, it's... Well, I mean, I think what he's getting at is like, operating on your family yeah. member? Yeah. Gotta be really into this. Because if you accidentally kill your family member... They also do this in the Nick. Do they? Yeah, he operates on his mom, I think, so... I would love to hear if, like, they it actually base some of this, this on him. This has to be based on the... Some or, of this. Yeah, this has to be based on the Nick. <laughs> no, yeah, definitely. As the weeks progressed, Isabella healed nicely without a single sign of infection and we live another three years before the cancer returned this time in her liver which was actually inoperable at the time <sighs> yeah but he extended her life three years which is fantastic That's great. yep without and learn something along the way absolutely with having successfully operated on his sister, Joseph Lister continued to publish his work in The Lancet and would even give a lecture at the British Medical Association. He was finally starting to receive a sliver of positive, positive feedback, but as no surprise, this is when the dissenters also arrived on the scene. A man going by the pen name of... 
I don't even know how to say this. Chirurgicus. Churros? Churros. <laughs> I don't would, know. By the pen name Churros would write <laughs> letters from the Edinburgh Daily Review claiming that Mr. Lister had simply stolen his idea from their French and German neighbors. Whoa. That's a that's a bold take there. Whoa, he's biting. They're trying to say he's biting their rhymes mm. over there. Everyone almost immediately could tell this churros was just a pseudonym used by the saltiest man in the UK and the developer of chloroform, James Y. Simpson. Ah. You might be wondering, why would James Y. Simpson want to discredit Joseph Lister? Well, that was because his acupressure technique was developed with the notion of avoiding infection as well. Simpson believed that acupressure could halt bleeding during surgery by using metal needles to fasten Ugh. the severed ends of large blood vessels to the underside of skin or muscular tissue, oh. thus removing the risk of infection from cloth sutures. But just like James Sims and several others, Joseph Lister viewed acupressure as pure bullshit. It is, and was, <laughs> and will be forever. If you remember, Sim cut up his pamphlet. Yep, <laughs> yep, we, yep, that's so radical. <laughs> Joseph Lister and James Y. Simpson would spend an unnecessary amount of time writing back and forth, bickering, using the papers as their medium. Yeah, diss tracks over and over. <laughs> These guys are beefing. This is this a rap is beef. Literally, it's like... Lister responding to a troll, like, honestly, just leave it alone, dude. Simpson is such a salty bitch. Like, you made chloroform. That's good. Good job. That's excellent. Yeah. Lister eventually found out that the Dr. Lemure, the French surgeon Simpson had spoken of, had certainly been using carbolic acid, but he was just recommending it as a cure-all for most diseases and definitely did not use it as an antiseptic. So in actual snake oil, he was yeah. using it as. Just like, oh, you got AIDS? All right, just drink, drink it. it. <laughs> You're fine. Get out of here. <laughs> so ridiculous. The other big issue Lister was facing outside of arguing with Simpson was trying to convince the old guard of surgeons to completely switch how they had been treating patients. While most could accept trying his newly found antiseptic, they refused to accept that something called germs could actually exist. Mm -hmm. One physician named James Morton, who literally used to work with Lister at Royal Infirmary, claimed that Joseph was just fear-mongering. Morton said, Nature is here regarded as some murderous hag whose fiendish machinations must be counteracted. She must be entrapped into good behavior. She is no longer to be trusted. (laughs) The Lancet paper that Lister had already published his studies in several times even refused to use the word germs, instead calling it septic elements contained in the air. That's that's pedantry. They did that simply because they didn't want to upset the old surgeons. Certainly. So, yeah, they're they're basically saying, absolutely, these are real, but yeah. we're not going to call it germs like this dumb hippie wants us to say. Uh, I think they're also trying to, like, uh, blend their, like, poison gas theory in with the germs theory and say, oh, it's all in the air. It's like that. You uh, know, like, you guys were right the whole time. God. Now... One of the main complaints about the use of Joseph Lister's carbolic acid method 
was that surgeons viewed it as overly complicated. Yeah. This entire generation of surgeons were taught how to utilize their speed over being slow and methodical. Thus, they felt they were wasting too much time applying Joseph Lister's methods properly. Those who even bothered trying it did so half-heartedly and found that it isn't helping. It's not helping anything. So in their mind, Joseph Lister's antiseptic treatment overall just simply didn't even work. Mm Mm-hmm. Because they're too stupid to do mm-hmm. it the right way. Yeah, they can't do the mixture right, and they get lazy about <laughs> it, and don't change the dressings and all that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. A good example of this was when a surgeon at University College Hospital named John Marshall started to protest against using it because he tried to use utilize it after performing a mastectomy, then noticed that the woman's urine had turned green. The reason behind the green urine was from carbolic acid poisoning, meaning John Marshall had not followed the steps in diluting the solution. Oh, he just gave her 100%? Yeah. Yeah. You know the type of people like this. They're like, you got to cut this. Like, fuck that. I'm just dumping it on there. You know, it's going to double the chance she won't get infected. Jesus. Another dissenter named Dr. Donald Campbell Black, a surgeon out of Glasgow, referred to Lister's method as the latest toy of medical science. (laughs) These fuckers are so snide. Oh, my God. (laughs) A paper called The Medical Times and Gazette published a piece claiming that Joseph Lister was lying about the mortality rates at the Royal Infirmary Unsurprisingly, they accomplish this by cherry-picking dates to make it appear as if Lister's treatment didn't actually oh, work. Oh, of course, of course. <sighs> this is so insane. Like, this is literally insane. One of the worst pieces of criticism he received came from an English surgeon named Thomas Nunley, who had given Lister's method of treatment a try and found he was not a fan. Yeah. Nunnally said this during a speech at the British Medical Association. Lister's antiseptic system was based on unsupported fancies, (laughs) which have little other existence than what is found in the imagination of those who believe in them. (laughs) This speculation of organic germs is, I fear, far more than an innocent fallacy. Oh, my God. It's a deep state conspiracy. (laughs) Illuminati. This is insane. (laughs) Can you believe people thought like this? Holy it, it, This fuck. just echoes through time, man. Spanish flu, same mm. thing. Here we are, same thing. Honestly, I'm sure Black Plague, same thing. Like, honestly, anybody who reads this book, this is like fucking at least like 20 pages of people roasting him about trying this. This is just a small <laughs> sample of the criticism he got. This is just like a tiny, <laughs> tiny sample of the criticism he got. In the face of unwavering criticism and realizing that changing the opinions of the older surgeons was proving to be futile, he knew if he focused on training the up-and-coming young surgeons how to properly use sanitation techniques, it would eventually provide more fruitful results in the long term. As always seems to happen with him, Joseph would have a golden opportunity rise up in front of him through tragedy. Fuck. That's how it works with these, with these great people. Yeah, how many? They have to I lose mean, everything. Well, I'm saying like through other people's tragedy, he oh, comes yes, in. Yes, that, yes, remember yes. how many times he's done that now? Yeah. Like, oh, this guy died, so I'm just gonna come on in. <laughs> <clears throat> in the early spring of 1869, James Sim, now 70 years old, was simply doing his rounds like he did every single day, 
but he started to feel a little funny, he would later, he would say. What a curious nervous feeling I had just now. <laughs> I felt as if I wanted to speak and could not. Ooh. By the end of the day, James Sim would suffer a paralytic stroke. <sighs> but lucky for Sim, he would not lose his ability to speak, but he would lose the function of the left side of his body. Now, even through therapy, Sim would regain some of his mobility, but he knew it was time to resign from his chair of clinical surgery and believe that Joseph Lister was the only suitable person to take this position. That is a good vote of confidence. Uh, this is his boy. These two are like homies, man. Mm-hmm. Well, so- it's his daddy-in-law. <laughs> so on August 18th, 1869... Joseph Lister would be elected to the chair of clinical surgery at the University of Edinburgh. Oh, I bet this pissed off the world. Oh, oh, guaranteed it did. Even though this was a very happy moment for Joseph, sadly, his father and one of the biggest proponents of keeping Joseph motivated, Joseph Jackson Lister would pass away that same year on October 24th, 1869. Congratulations and fuck you. <sighs> you know, one I didn't really mention it, but like literally one of the biggest reasons he wanted to go back to London was so he could be with his father sure. more. Sure. He's so, been basically isolated from him. Yeah. They did write a lot. They wrote like literally every week. That's not the same. So, you can text yeah. someone all you want, but you got to see that person eventually. Right. Exactly. His father's death was followed by the de- his dear friend and mentor, James Sims' death, on June 24, 1870. After Sims' death, Joseph Lister found the medical community was looking to him for guidance. He had a pretty healthy youth movement already established in Glasgow, and now he was working on getting the medical students and medical assistants at the University of Edinburgh thoroughly educated about germs and how to properly use antiseptics. Fuck yeah. Now, during this time, I didn't I'm going to go quickly over. He was really working on trying to develop more sanitary sutures. So, he was trying to uh-huh. utilize uh this thing called catgut. Have you ever heard of this? No. It actually has nothing to do with a okay, cat. good. But it's uh, like the intestines of like an animal. Maybe and a they, cat. <laughs> it's like cows, dogs, pigs. It's literally every animal but a cat. Wow. <laughs> but the cool thing is he was trying to use it. They'd like wind the intestines into thread and then- Oh, so these are the internal ones for yep. like- Okay. So when you stitch someone up, they would just combine with your flesh. I like that. That's great. Maybe Did they it work? Use, uh, no, he couldn't never get it to work, but I have a feeling it's used today because they literally attach pig hearts pieces into human heart pieces. Yeah. So. Well, I, I think it's a great idea if you can use organic material. Mm. Yeah, That'll just, kinda, just become you. You just got your part pork then, part piggy. Yeah. I'm good with that, though. <laughs> yeah. I'm not, uh, I'm not kosher or anything like that. Now, even though Lister had converted a healthy chunk of the younger medical professionals in Scotland, he is about to have another prime opportunity to prove to the older surgeons that his antiseptic methods work. But this was going to be a double-edged sword. If it works, it will be great for his reputation. But if it fails, it is almost certainly going to have people lose faith in it. Hmm. The date is September 4th, 1871, and Joseph Lister's carriage pulls up to the front entrance of Belmoral Castle, located in the Highlands of Scotland. The individual he is about to treat personally is none other than Queen Victoria. Whoa! Yeah, this blew my mind when I was reading it in the book. Holy Whoa! Fuck. 
Does she have like a summer house up there? I guess I Balmoral guess. Castle, yeah, huh? She likes to chill there. I don't know what she's doing there, but she likes likes That's it there, I awesome. guess. awesome. <laughs> the- My boy's a royal surgeon now. <laughs> The queen was quite ill from abscesses in her armpit that were about as big as an orange at this point. Ouch. Inbred. That's just the way it goes. (laughs) Royalties are inbred. Inbred bubbles. Inbred bubbles. (laughs) The reason they called upon Lister was because he was now considered the most prevalent surgeon in Scotland. Sure. Now that James Sims was dead. He was the Edinburgh chair of surgery. Mm. Queen Victoria had brushed off her personal doctors initially, not believing that the abscess was that big of an issue, but pain had gotten so excruciating, Mm. even risking death was a better option than dealing with that pain Mm. any longer. Mm. I just had a little tooth abscess, and I was thinking the same thing. You're like, can Joseph come on his cart and come over to my house and take care of this shit? Give me a little (laughs) rag of chloroform and get to work. Joseph also brought with him his noose invention, which was a carbolic acid atomizer. Well, was it sub-ohm or ohm? Or I don't know. <laughs> like, you're vaping with this shit? He would just take hits off it in between <laughs> his procedures. Which was often called a donkey engine. Because, <laughs> I don't know why. Don't even ask me why. But they claim it was because... It was a large copper atomizer sitting on a tripod that stood about three foot high. The idea was that if he was constantly spraying carbolic acid into the air, it would reduce the need to put as much of the substance on the wound itself, thus reducing the chance of skin irritation. That's perfect. And you're just like, you're basically spraying Lysol throughout the room for the most part the whole time. This had to be a sight to watch. Like he's... Doing surgery, and he basically has like a mister coming over top of him. It's like in Vegas, the the cool air that they blast Mm. on you. (laughs) Joseph Lister would have the assistance of royal physician William Jenner for this procedure. Jenner would mostly be operating the atomizer, which he was doing perfectly fine at first. But at one point, he accidentally slipped and proceeded to spray the queen directly in the (laughs) face. (laughs) <laughs> I was surprised he didn't get his head fucking no, lopped off, off with his that. head. <laughs> as far as with Joseph, his job was pretty simple. He would make a deep incision into Queen Victoria's abscess, which caused a large amount of blood and pus to come shooting out of it. Hmm. He then cleaned the wound and applied applied his normal antiseptic. They call that inbred soup. <laughs> the inbred gusher. That's what that is. <laughs> Interestingly. The following morning, when he went to change the queen's bandages, he found that there was some pus forming. No. In a bit of a panic, knowing full well this was a clear sign of infection beginning, he tried something that he had literally never done before. He would remove one of the rubber hoses from the atomizer, soak it in carbolic acid, and then place it into the the queen's wound to keep the pus draining out of it. The world's first drain. Yeah, which luckily... The world's first surgical drain. My ma has one right now still. Really? Yeah, she's got one in, yeah. The uh, girl I work with who just had uh, her cancer surgery apparently has one sticking out of her neck, so... Hey, you they need work. Them. Holy shit, Joseph Lister on the fly invented the <laughs> surgical drain. I'm the queen of England. That is the coolest <laughs> thing I've ever fucked. This, uh, this guy's James Bond now. Like, he should have been a king. 
which lucky for him worked out in the end and all probably ultimately saved Queen Victoria's life. And everyone else having any sort of surgery. Right. Joseph Lister would later say this to his said students. Gentlemen, I am the only man who has ever stuck a knife into the queen. <laughs> I wonder if she appreciated that. God. <laughs> Fucking roasting the queen to a For a guy who is known for not really telling many jokes, it's a pretty good one for his students there. Well, you have to say mm. it, though. I like. I wonder if he got OBE'd. Is he a knight at all? Yeah, he know? gets okay. knighted. He gets knighted. He does get knighted. Now, with the queen's stamp of approval all over Joseph Lister's antiseptic treatment, it did wonders with convincing most of the surgeons across Scotland to begin using antiseptics. London seemed to be only second to America when it came to accepting the fact that antiseptics could be very effective and that germs actually existed. Fucking assholes. As his popularity began sweeping across the country, it brought with it a large batch of new students wanting to learn under Professor Lister, which was great because the youth were so vital in carrying the torch in regards to battling infection. Yes, they are. The children are the future. Over the next five years, Joseph Lister would travel around Europe showcasing his carbolic acid treatment, which Europe, moreover Germany, welcomed with open arms. I bet Saya uses it all the time. (laughs) I hope she messages us and explains if they use carbolic acid. That'd be sweet if they still use it. I doubt it, but it'd be sweet if they still use it. I also doubt it. (laughs) I also doubt it. (laughs) While this is great, Lister wanted to try to have a breakthrough with the most stubborn country in the world. USA. The United States of America. USA. USA. (laughs) I knew it was going to be that one. (laughs) A healthy chunk of the medical community in America simply viewed Lister as a quack doctor. Mm -hmm. Some hospitals outright banned the use of carbolic acid as antiseptic treatment. I love it. I love it. So scared of advancement (laughs) that they have to ban it. And worst of all, most of them still refuse to believe that germs could actually exist which is sadly very reminiscent of people in America and COVID-19 in modern times. Mm-hmm. People never fucking change. They Jesus don't change. Christ. You're, I think you're born that way. I guess. I mean, you have to be born stupid. <laughs> One American surgeon in particular named Samuel D. Gross, he was so against Lister's methods and so against the notion that germs could possibly exist, he would literally pay an artist to paint him a picture depicting the image of a boy suffering from osteomyelitis of the femur, which in the background was your typical dingy, dirty operating room. All of the surgeon's assistants had bloody hands and all of their instruments were bloody. He viewed this truly as a symbol of a real surgeon. what a piece of shit. He's such a fucking asshole. A true symbol of real surgery. Yeah, he's like, none of those... Pussy liberals over there in Europe, bitch asses. Yeah, everything needs to be filthy. <laughs> the Massachusetts General Hospital had a surgeon by the name of Dr. George Gay, <laughs> who, who had begun treating his patients suffering from compound fractures with Lister's antiseptic treatment and was having fantastic results. Mm. But when the head surgeon, Henry Mm. Jacob Bigelow, heard some of his surgeons were using what he called medical hocus pocus, (laughs) 
he straight up outlawed further use of it and said if he caught anyone using it, they would be fired immediately. (laughs) (laughs) How dare you try and save these people that we're supposed to be saving? What the fuck is going on here? So this is interesting. I didn't know if you knew this, but apparently during the Civil War, a lot of people who had zero medical expertise were literally just like, okay, you're the new surgeon, right, on the Mm -hmm. battlefield. Mm -hmm. And after the war was over, a lot of them straight up became surgeons. So On the job training. Now, from what I understand, those people... Were in America were the were the accepting ones of antiseptic treatment because they had seen the horrors on the battlefield. A lot of these people who aren't accepting of it are like the old guard, book learning. Yeah, so that's kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah. Very well, interesting. they saw. Yeah, they firsthand saw mm. exactly what gangrene does yeah, to open sawing wounds. Sawing off fucking yeah. legs mm-hmm. left and right. Yeah, they were they were ready to uh, never have to think about that butchery again. <laughs> Still determined to do the right thing, Joseph Lister would travel to Pennsylvania to speak at the International Medical Congress and try to convince these Yankees to give his method a shot. After his presentation speaking all about how germs worked and how one can properly combat them, he found himself being criticized by the audience and many other medical professionals. One man in the audience even accused Joseph Lister of being mentally unhinged and had a grasshopper in his head. <laughs> I love that expression. I've never heard it before, but I love it. Boy, you got a grasshopper in your head. <laughs> but even if he didn't ultimately find success with his speech in Philadelphia, he was going to travel to different parts of the United States and see if they would listen to him. Go on a U.S. tour, <laughs> honestly. That's what he's about to do. You have to. Joseph would take a train out to San Francisco and and then make his way back to New York, stopping several places along the way to give presentations. Now, the really important stop he had is when he returned to New York and received word that a few distinguished surgeons in the New York area had already been utilizing his antiseptic system were too scared to speak in a public setting like the International Medical Congress over fear of backlash. Yeah. yeah. One, one surgeon named William W. Keene, who would later become a pioneer in neurological surgery, said this about Joseph Lister's methods. For me, it changed surgery from purgatory to paradise. Yeah. That's pretty resounding yep. right there. Yep. <laughs> Holy shit. You can't you can't get a better blurb than that for <laughs> no. the back of your book. I kind of like that, though. <laughs> That's fantastic. Eventually, Joseph Lister would put on a large presentation for the surgeons and students at Charity Hospital, which would prove to be very effective at changing the feelings of those in the medical community towards Joseph's antiseptic treatment. As a cherry on top to his trip to America... Right before he was about to return to the United Kingdom, he would stop in Boston at the behest of Henry J. Bigelow, the man who had outlawed the use of carbolic acid in his hospital. Lister would give a lecture to the medical students at Harvard, and Henry J. Bigelow would end that lecture by saying, I have learned that the duty of the surgeon should be to destroy the actual intruders, germs. And effectually to exclude their thronging companions. Ironically, Massachusetts General Hospital 
would become the first ever hospital in America to institutionalize the use of carbolic acid for surgical purposes. Whoa! Complete Henry 180 Bigelow. there. Old yeah. guard. Yeah. Piece of shit. Wanted to stab him in the head. Now all of a sudden, mm. Lister's best friend and you know, my best friend by extension. <laughs> you know what? Sometimes it's really hard to look in the mirror and be like, you know what? I was wrong. He did it. Henry he J. Did Bigelow it. did it. Henry Bigelow, welcome back to the side of the righteous, my friend. <laughs> is that, is Massachusetts General Hospital where they had ER? Or was that a different hospital? Did they ever say, that's wicked retarded? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. They wouldn't let Bill Burr operate. <laughs> when Joseph finally made his way back to England in 1877, he was living peacefully in Edinburgh when he heard the news that the professor of surgery at King's College in London had passed away. Don't even. And he saw this as his way to finally get back to London like he had always wanted to do. Although... The university's council members were a bit hesitant at first because Joseph Lister was bringing with him a list of demands if he was going to be the next professor of surgery and added to the fact that word had gotten back to them that he was talking shit about London. So uh, he came back with a rider. Like yeah. he came back with no brown M&Ms. He, he's so like well known now. He can do this. Like I love he can it. push his demands on them. It's like I want a new pair of Jordans <laughs> in my surgical room every time I operate. <laughs> in September of 1877, he left Scotland, headed for London to become the new professor of clinical surgery at King's College. He was going to use his new position to not only teach the young students but also strong arm his way into getting the rest of London to follow suit when it comes to using his antiseptic methods. Love it. Joseph would spend the rest of his life teaching his students, continuously working on making his methods better, and spreading the word about the immense benefits of antiseptics. Joseph Lister would eventually pass away peacefully on February 10th, 1912. His sight and hearing had been severely diminished at the time of his death, but... They would discover, even on his deathbed, he would never give up his work on continuously trying to advance medicine. He literally had notes sitting next to no him way. when he died. Yeah. Yeah. That's nuts. He didn't. He never gave up the battle. That's a restless mind there. <laughs> that's great. A final few interesting notes. Even though we wouldn't know it for some time afterwards... There were two people who would witness Joseph Lister speak at the International Medical Congress that would go on to do some very important things. First, there was a man named Dr. Joseph Joshua Lawrence who would go on to create Listerine. Whoa! But after he had developed this alcohol-based solution, he didn't know what to do with it. So, a man named Jordan Wheat Lambert ended up buying Dr. Lawrence's formula and tried to market it as a dandruff treatment, mm -hmm. a floor cleaner, mm -hmm. and even a cure for gonorrhea without success. <laughs> <laughs> Take a shot of Listerine, get rid of that fucking gonorrhea. It's bro. just good for making your mouth feel nice. <laughs> <laughs> but in 1895, Jordan Wheat Lambert started to market Listerine to dental professionals as oral antiseptic, and obviously, the rest is history. I knew his name had to have something mm. to do with Listerine. The second person to watch Lister speak in Pennsylvania was a man named 
Robert Wood Johnson, who would eventually join forces with his brothers, Edward <gasps> and James Johnson, to manufacture sterile surgical dressings and sutures, their company would eventually be named Johnson & Johnson. Which is the microchip that I have. Oh, in yeah. Look mm-hmm. at that. You got mm-hmm. a connection. I love it. To Joseph Six degrees right there. from Joseph Lister. <laughs> As no surprise, in America, after the success of Lister teaching a great number of doctors how to properly use carbolic acid as antiseptic, it created a great number of actual quacks who went on to try to utilize carbolic acid as a cure-all for everything and other allegedly useful goods. You're always going to have the snake oil salesman. Yeah, they were like, they made it into toothpaste. They made it into, like, all this shit. It was, you know, it's America. Mm-hmm. That's what they do. But Capitalism, uh, baby. But there you go. There's the life of Joseph, and there is why we are all, are all probably not dead today. Yeah, why our bloodlines continued yeah. so that we can listen to podcasts. Where uh, hospitals turned from places of death to places of healing. Mm-hmm. Right here. Because mm-hmm. of Joseph and... Joseph Lister. Yeah. And Tommy Sim. We got to give him some credit, too. James. James Sim. James Sim. He Tommy prefer- James. I, I, <laughs> Who I'm the hell terrible. is Tommy Sim? I have no idea. <laughs> I have no clue whatsoever. Sounds like he belongs in the band Druid or something. Oh, Tommy <laughs> Sim. Jordan Fox. You know what? The, like Kyle Gass. I want to know if you feel this. Like, after hearing all of this, like, it's so ridiculous to me that people... Can't accept that coronavirus exists. Yeah. It really makes me kind of sad. Oh, yeah. Especially, I mean, that one fella went fucking nuts and died in a mental hospital yelling about germs. (laughs) And now, yeah, people, they just... And even the deniers whose loved ones die, yeah, and then there it doesn't that doesn't scare off other deniers, which I really don't understand. Lister was battling germs, and you guys can't fucking help battle germs that you actually know exist yeah. oh the best thing now is like because they're easing up on restrictions mm. people everybody's saying see it was never a thing at all it was oh this was God. all bullshit the whole time it's like or that's what fucking vaccines do you fucking dipshit yeah, yeah. i my favorite is like uh well you, the flu's gone now isn't that a coincidence the flu season's over dick sh- <laughs> dick shitter well they went from like what 30 to like 50,000 deaths a year to 1,200 this year, this mm. last year. And that's just from social distancing and wearing mask masks wearing. and wearing yeah. masks. Yeah. <laughs> so if you have the flu from now on, I'm going to even be a part of this. I'm going to wear a mask wherever I go. I think I'm going to wear a mask in public just to not yeah. be a fuck, uh, a, contam- a contagion. Well, if you're sick, just wear a mask. If you're yeah. not, you're fine. Asia's been doing it for years, mm-hmm. but they did start this thing. Uh, <laughs> no offense to Asians. It is Asian American history month i saw that on comcast today think of it like this yeah let's not blame them because america blamed named the spanish flu <laughs> they had nothing mm-hmm. to do with it it started in an army base in yeah. kentucky <laughs> yeah let's not let's not turn you know racist rhetoric yeah. into to a weaponized disease yeah yeah all right that's fair all mm. right everybody thank you for listening uh i hope you enjoyed joseph lister as much as i did that was definitely my uh, i think that's my favorite series Hell i think yeah. so uh he was a hero he was uh, i got to be a little sick at points which is pretty good <laughs> for me uh God, i like it i like it all so if you liked it do me a favor uh write us a form response on our website bumblebuttpodcast.com while you're clicking around go to the go to the shop and buy 
any number of merchandise. Just buy it all. Go to patreon.com slash bumblebuttpodcast. Donate at any level. $15 and up will get you on that sick Pokemon card mm. life. Mm. Did you announce ever what the newest Pokemon is? Uh, well, our last one was Ed Gein. Right. Um, our newest one, I have not developed yet. Oh, yeah, it's always well, a surprise for everybody. I like to keep it a surprise. Oh yeah, for plus it's yeah mid month. I don't mm. know what I'm thinking either. No. <laughs> uh, that's great. I got a little bit of time before you have to start cracking the whip on me. Yeah, Ed Gein, that's a good one. Mm-hmm. That's a goodie. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a couple people post that, which I like to see Hell very yeah. much. Hell yeah! Another thing that you can do is well, how about you bop the follow button on Spotify? That would be nice to you. And Hell leave yeah. us a five-star review on iTunes. Yeah, we got a couple to read here. It seems like uh, iTunes did the little review dump yeah. on us here. <laughs> yeah, the refresh. <laughs> we'll start off with Love It by 60 Pounds. Starting with the Richard Chase series, so good. Thank you so much. Thank you, 60 Pounds. Next one is The Best Out There by Pinko Commune. Seriously? Give these guys a listen. Thank you so much. Thank we you, really Pinko agree. Commune. And now Adam's got to read our review, we, not review. That's right. This is a Squarespace form submission that came from our website when you fill in the little box there. This says, best podcast ever. I know you love the five-star reviews, but I don't have an Apple account, so this is my only option. Listening to this podcast has gotten through the past two weeks of work with my sanity intact, so thanks for that. My coworker was on quarantine, so I've been doing all the paperwork and high-low driving for our shipments alone, and without you guys, I would have lost my mind. Thank you so much for all the laughs and company you have kept me. I feel like I'm hanging out with a couple of friends. Love you both. Adam is my ultimate podcast crush. Ha-ha. You guys are amazing. I look forward to every new episode, and that is from Courtney. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Courtney. Thank you, Courtney. I appreciate it. Adam I, is a stud muffin. I like I, being I a I like being a podcast crush. That doesn't <laughs> bum me out too What's much. What's it like to be in a position where people have a crush on you? Well it's, you it's would a, know. Me. Yeah. No, I don't oh, know. Oh, Mr. Modest over here. Yeah. <laughs> nobody likes old Cody. Yeah, nobody likes old Cody. Just put him in the corner. <laughs> nobody puts Cody in the corner. No, no, no. I'm uh uh, since Jordan's gone, now you were number one, Adam. Yeah, I guess. I'm yeah. still, I guess I advanced from three to two. Yeah. Still <laughs> chopped liver, though. Yeah. Your first loser. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, Joseph wouldn't have even saved my life. No. He would say, <laughs> he wouldn't give you no bedside manner. No, absolutely whatsoever. not. He would say, go see McAfee. He'll, he'll, <laughs> he'll, he'll, he'll straighten you uh, out. You'll be fine with McAfee. He'll chop your leg off eventually. Piece of shit. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, do you have any other orders of business to attend I to? I do not. I'll tell you what, I love this series. I'm super glad it happened. And I hope all of you liked it as well out there. So I've been Adam. That's with Cody. Thank you, Cody. Thank you, Adam. All right. Good job, everybody. And have a nice weekend, unless it's Tuesday. <laughs>